0: We have so many fantastic podcasters in today's episode. First is the James Beard award-winning podcast, The Sporkful, by Dan Pashman. The Sporkful is a show that tries to understand why we eat the way we do. Dan interviews anyone from TV chefs to comics about their relationship with food. I personally love the recent episode with Maeve Higgins, who is one of my female comic crushes. Next up, we have PubCast Worldwide. Follow fellow traveler and alcoholic, I'm sorry, I mean beer enthusiast, Chris Luque, around the world as he explores places he's visiting through their beers and spirits. He knows that nothing pairs better with a local brew than unfiltered conversations with interesting locals. You should listen to the episode that we recorded together in Mexico City. Lastly, we have Cultura Nacional, hosted by Ubis Yaren a Chilando who loves tacos so much he made a whole podcast about it. Each episode, Ubish analyzes a different cuisine from his motherland of Mexico. If you're looking to understand the intricacies of Mexican cuisine or just want to know where to get the best tacos in Mexico City, check out Ubish's podcast or book him on a food tour in CDMX. You should check out the episode that he and I did together as he gives me a personal tour of the -the off-the-beaten-path tacos in Mexico City. Check out the Sporkful, Pubcast Worldwide, and Cultura Nacional on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. They only come out at night. They roam the streets of Mexico City, which has been a central settlement in the Americas for hundreds of years. You can hear the screech blocks away. It's one of the few noises detectable over the obstreperous streets of Mexico's capital, piercing the night like an arrow in a knife fight. The sound is always moving, and we are hungry for them. There are few, they are untraceable, and they are the Sweet Potato Men. Those who live in Mexico City know of these men who roam the streets with hot and tender sweets. If you have a craving for a warm, wood-fired tuber, you will have to go out searching. These vendors are never in one place. They are constantly walking around with ovens on wheels, rolling through the town and roasting sweet potatoes and plantains. They rest styrofoam plates and plastic forks on top of the oven. Small jars of sweetened condensed milk and powdered sugar balance on top as these vendors weave their way through the moonlit streets of Mexico City. See, there's no way to find him other than pricking your ears. You wait to hear their signature sound, a noise so jarring I thought it was a national warning sign the first time I heard it. But once you hear it, you have to start running. You follow the noise through the streets until you find him asking locals along the way, have you seen the sweet potato man? They will point you in the direction they think they heard him in last, leading you closer or further away from your roving craving. On an unsuspecting night in Mexico City, I was wandering around with my new friend Ubish, a local chef and food tour guide in the city. We were up for an adventure. We wanted to find the sweet potato man. So we finished the last of our tacos and began hunting.
1: That's why you go out to the street and wonder, like, hey, have you heard him? Where where do you hear him? And the people is like, I think over there. And you're, like, running. Like, we did.
0: Yeah. Is that how everybody finds him?
1: I think so, yeah. I think that nobody has, like, his cell phone. Definitely there's no app for it
0: where's the sweet potato and you just see that'd be an amazing app you just see all these like little wandering like sweet potatoes walking around like that's what the little app would be <laughs>
1: a sweet potato wheat fit
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'd be so cute that's someone should get on that yeah I don't know how big of a market that would be I don't know Mille- I mean yeah I don't know how obsessed millennial Mexicans are with this with apps
1: ah no uh, I mean kind of yeah
0: yeah who isn't so you see I map and then... As we scanned the streets and listened closely for that screech, it felt reminiscent of our ancestors who used to have to hunt for their food, searching for nourishment based on the clues around them, patterns that they would have to put together and decode to see if something was edible or not. Our hunting eventually evolved into something more than just alleviating our stomach pains. Food became an art, a culture, a marker. Food is so essential to our condition that we have turned it into a god. And today, when food is at a click of a button, we will still go to the ends of the earth for the perfect meal. On today's episode, we're hungry. We will talk about the one thing that people travel thousands of miles, wait hours in line, gone in a flash, seasoned by anticipation and an empty stomach. Food. The one thing people miss more than their families. We will talk to travelers who understand that food is more than just a combination of ingredients. It's an expression, nostalgia, and community. It is personal enough to leave a long, bad Yelp review or return to the same place year after year after year. Grab your favorite bowl of anything and settle in. This episode is an all-you-can-eat buffet. I'm Adrian Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go. I couldn't help but recognize my own strange behavior as I scoured the streets of Mexico City with Ubish. Any high pitch would stop us in our tracks. We'd freeze, make eye contact, listen a little harder, pick a direction, and then move on. I mean, what was I doing? I was in the midst of hunting down an innocent man in the streets of Mexico City, in order to have a root vegetable covered in sugar. And it made me start thinking about all the times I have acted rather strangely around food. As a kid, I only ate Lucky Charms marshmallows in order of the song, I refused to consume bananas until I was 20, and for some reason a singular peanut can diffuse my raging hangriness. But I know that I'm not the only one who acts a little weird when it comes to food. So I decided to ask someone who also analyzes the strange habits and rituals we adopt when it comes to it. Dan Pashman is the creator of The Sportfall, a podcast for eaters. He himself is a curious eater. But he's more interested about why we eat the way we do than the specific ingredients inside. Why do we wait in line for an hour for the perfect slice of pizza? Why do some people still choose to forage when we can just go to Whole Foods? or dissecting any of the latest food gimmick. I asked him to tell me a time he got a little nuts for a meal. Do you have any go-to food stories that you like telling, especially when it comes to travel? This can range from the amazing to the bizarre.
2: Well, I remember I did study abroad in London. and I was one of those many Americans, you know, backpacking around Western Europe. And we were in Madrid. And we were in, like, whatever, the main, the big main square in the middle, one of the main squares in the middle of Madrid. like. And we, find, I don't know, we ended up in this, it's almost like a diner, like a, what I would call, consider like a greasy spoon. And I love a good greasy spoon. And we go in there, and there's a menu, and there's pictures of all these different dishes, and I see a picture of this giant sandwich And it said the Sandwich Grand Santa Teresa. And I ordered that. And what it was was a triple-decker sandwich made like on a flat-top griddle. So imagine like a piece of toast. And then there was melted ham and cheese. Then another piece of toast. Then lettuce, tomato, onion, and mayo. Then another piece of toast. Then an egg sunny side up. And then a fourth piece of toast on top with a hole cut out where the yolk was. That I remember. It was a circle cut out on the top piece of toast for the yolk to shine through. That was the sandwich Grand Santa Teresa, and it was amazing. Because you bite into it and the yolk breaks and it's the yolk is hot and the ham and cheese are hot. But the, the middle layer is cool. And you've got the mayo and you've got the crunch of the lettuce and the cool tomato. And you've got the cheesy oozy and the, the egg yolk running down and the to- crunch of the toast. And all these things are coming together and it was so, so good. That was the spring of 1998. You can tell I still remember it. Fast forward two or three years, my brother was doing a study abroad in in Madrid. And I went to visit him and I said, "While I'm here, we got to go get the sandwich grand Santa Teresa. He's like, "Oh, fine, fine, you know like, clearly it's not the most authentically Spanish dish I will grant you. But it was special to me in that moment. I said, "We gotta go. And I remember the place we were in the piazza and I go into the place walk into the greasy spoon. I see the menu up there with all the pictures, the different dishes. No sandwich, Grand Santa Teresa. I was crestfallen. And I, but I, I was like, I was so set on getting this sandwich. And my brother speaks very good Spanish. And I said, you got to talk to them. Ask them what happened to the sandwich, Grand Santa Teresa. And he's already rolling his eyes at me, but he's like, all right. He goes, talks to them, to the guy that, on the counter. He comes back to me. The guy's never heard of the sandwich. He doesn't know what you're talking about. I'm looking around, I'm looking around. I'm like I'm sure this is the place. I'm sure this is the place. I'm like I'm questioning myself. I said, "Well, can you describe it to him? Just ask him if he can make it. Like, like I'll describe it." So now, now my brother's getting annoyed, and but he you could tell that it meant a lot to me. So he starts describing the sandwich. I'm, I'm like, there's a layer like this and a layer like this. And he's describing it in Spanish to the guy, like with the sort of the white paper cap behind the counter. And I'm watching this guy's reaction. And you could see what's going through his head. Like, who the hell are these two? What is this guy talking about? Like, this is like, you know, <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> I didn't sign up for this when I came into work today. But he finished explaining it. The guy had several follow-up questions. He goes onto the griddle. And I'm watching him very closely. He's cooking an egg. He's toasting some bread. He's got ham, you know. And it comes out and it's not right. It didn't, I, I don't remember, the layers weren't right or the cheese wasn't melted. Or I, it was only two deckers instead of three. I, you know, it wasn't right. And I, I took one look at it, I said to my brother, this isn't it. He's like, we're eating that. I'm not going to go ask. I said, please, please, please just ask again. So he calls the guy back and describes it a second time in more decent. I'm like critiquing. Like this sandwich, you know, every, they, the chef and my brother held it together considering how annoying I was being. But, but so I said, come on, I, you know, I, describing it and describing it, and the guy goes back to the griddle, and he's, he's toasting, he's frying, it all comes together, and it was, it was closer, but it still wasn't quite right. I don't even remember exactly what was not right about it. I just remember feeling dissatisfied. It was disappointing. It was a disappointment that I was not able to go back and reclaim the sandwich Grand Santa Teresa. But, you know, what I should have learned from that, really, is that there are some things you can't recreate. Mm -hmm. Like, it was the moment. It was the surprise. It was, you know.
0: Surprise tastes really good. Yes.
2: Expectations are a huge part of the eating experience. Mm -hmm. Like, that's one of the fun things about traveling and eating. It's just, like, wandering a new place and taking a chance walking into some place that you're not sure if it's going to be good, your expectations, you know, you don't have great expectations. You have, not that you don't have good expectations. like You don't know what to expect. And you just kind of use your intuition to, like, find a place you think is going to be good, and then you just roll the dice. And sometimes, you know, yeah, it hurts when you waste a meal on the road. I mean, that's, that hurts. But when you win, I mean, it, it feels good.
0: I wanted to know why he thought we go a little bananas when it comes to eating. Is there a hunger within us that sits deeper than our large intestine? Why do we get kind of crazy when it comes to food and the rituals around it?
2: Uh, two reasons, I would say. Number one, everybody eats. Food is universal. So it's something everyone can identify with and, and just about everyone can have an opinion about. But also, food is really a stand-in for identity, and so w- what you eat or don't eat says a lot about uh, where you're from, uh, how you were raised, the religion and or culture and or region of your background, and um, and the choices you make as an adult about what to eat and not eat say a lot about your beliefs, and. So it's not just like an opinion. It's not just a preference like, oh, I think that this kind of pen is better than that kind of pen for writing, you know, or whatever it is that people get into. Um, It's a reflection of who you are. And so I think that's why people get especially attached to their eating preferences, because it's really like if you attack that, you're like the people take that very personally.
0: Right. Why is food a good lens to experience travel and other cultures through?
2: I mean, I guess maybe food is is especially accessible. You know, like maybe this is my bias because I love to eat and I'm very into food. But like, you know, if I go to visit some other place and you show me an amazing building, I love a good building. Like, I'm interested in architecture. Like, I've read some books about great bridges, and you know, I'm I am somewhat interested in great works of architecture. But I don't feel like I have a deep. Uh, it's it's not going to connect with me on a visceral level you know there's a couple pieces of art I've seen in my life traveling around like connected with me on a deep visceral level but most of them I was like oh like that's nice um but when you have a great meal in a place it's like that connection you know I you, you don't ever forget that you know those are the highlights like that's and there's something that feels so rooted in the place. the ingredients come from that place, and the recipe comes from that place, and the people in that place have been eating that food for a very long time, and they're going back generations and so you're you know you are connecting with that when you eat that food
0: awesome, so how does right so I guess that just goes along with food helps us understand each other on a different level.
2: Well, I get a little bit cautious with that. I get what you're saying, yes, does food help us understand each other like there's this idea you hear a lot about, like food brings everyone together, and that's kind of true. But food also drives people apart. People fight about food, you know, and and be- because like anything that's a stand-in for identity is going to lead to tension. And they don't just fight in fun, silly ways like on the internet, you know, like like go to the Middle East and ask them who invented hummus, and you know you'll need to take cover because that's how intense it is. Or you know, like, who invented it, who has it, who can claim ownership over it, you know, and 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 which group, and then and. Uh, it's intense. Like it's not even funny. Intense. That's how serious it is. And and food certainly has been a way throughout history to also to keep people apart. Restaurants were segregated during the time of segregation. People of different colors weren't allowed to eat together. And uh, and and many of the the foods that we now consider to be um, well, for one thing, many foods that we consider to be comfort foods are foods that are born out of poverty. They're like like foods that were created with a. a what's considered a low quality or cheap cut of meat or a way to extend meat longer. Um, some, a lot of the foods that are now considered to be these sort of iconic dishes of the South and of soul food were also born out of slavery and out of the, the ingredients that slaves were given to cook for themselves. So, um, the point is like food doesn't always bring people together. Food's a tool. And it can be used for many different purposes. But I think it's one, if you're going to use a tool to bring people together, food is one of the most effective tools because, because it's universal.
0: As Dan says, food is a tool, it can wield relationships with people who don't speak the same language, but show us something explicitly personal when one culture presents their cuisine to another. How we cook is just as telling of a culture as history or politics. It's the way to see how other people perceive the world. That's exactly what Jonathan Berg felt when he went to Tokyo. This former contestant of MasterChef was originally not excited to visit the largest city in the world on this small island floating out in the edge of the Pacific Ocean.
3: And the reason I went to Japan was my best friend was going through a terrible divorce and I said, just to give him something to look forward to, you know, I'll take you anywhere in the world you want to go. And he said, I really want to go to Japan. I just want to see the Great Wall on the way. So we ended up doing a couple of days in Beijing and then a couple of weeks in Japan. Going to Japan, I had it in my head that I was going to hate Tokyo. Um, it seemed to me like it was just going to be some, a place that was overwhelmingly crowded, modern, with no real culture, nothing dry, like new york but on steroids and without the trash and that's what i expected from tokyo and i was completely wrong the food scene in tokyo was one of the most unbelievable things i've ever experienced the biggest sense that i got from tokyo's culinary scene is that this is a culture that understands what good food is in every single form. To give you an idea, we went to just this little French cafe uh, because it happened to be overlooking the Shibuya Crossing, which is apparently the, most, the busiest pedestrian intersection you know, in the world with every changing of the light during rush hour, bringing like thousands of people across the street. So we thought the best way to see it would be to get a window table at a restaurant. And we were fortunate and found one at this little French cafe. And I had a croque monsieur there. No big deal, but it was done just spectacularly well by people who didn't speak a word of English, maybe not even a word of French. This was a casual, overly touristy place and the food was fairly reasonably priced and good and that's the sense that I got everywhere. I've had I had Italian food there. I had, you know, just random stuff off the side of the street. Everything was great. But there are definitely a few experiences that stand out that I want to talk about. So, my, my best friend is a huge foodie as am I. And we wanted to have a variety of experiences. We went to Nakiryu. It is a Michelin-starred ramen joint where i think that there were maybe 16 seats at this bar so you have to get in line early we got there about an hour maybe hour and a half before it opened and we were first in line which is great because by the time we left the line was probably an hour and a half two hours long and you order from a machine the machine has japanese characters and that's it so we found a website ahead of time that said, if you go to Nakiryu, here's the buttons to press. We weren't 100% sure what we were getting, but we press those buttons. It prints out a little ticket. You then take the ticket up to the bar where you know, one of the chefs leans over, takes the ticket from you, and then brings you your bowl of whatever sort of ramen you, you, you chose. So I don't remember what it was called. But it was this like sesame miso heavy spicy uh, ramen. The noodles were, I mean, just the definition of of perfection. It's, you know, it had minced pork on top and you get it with kaidama, which means a second order of noodles. um, So that when you finish your noodles and you still got all this broth left, they make you another order of noodles and pour that in. And it's only like another, you know, basically the equivalent of like $2. That meal, Michelin-starred bowl of soup, the likes of which I have never had before, will probably never have again. I I tell people about this place, and I say, if you don't believe in God, this is soup that will make you believe in God, um, at least for the hour that you're slurping it. And I think it ran like $11. I also just, as a side note, to me, the best thing about going to Tokyo and eating a bowl of ramen is that this is a culture that says, not only is it okay to slurp your soup, but that that is a sign of satisfaction. And so it is encouraged. And given how clean Tokyo is, there are no trash cans anywhere. People carry their trash with them. People even carry little Ziploc bags to put their cigarette butts in. A culture that says, everything's about cleanliness, but go ahead, slurp your soup. You know, it's going to get all over the place. I mean, that's a culture I can get behind. I think that that really shows the proper priorities. On the flip side of the spectrum. The, so I was going to say that the last experience that I really wanted to talk about in Tokyo was sushi. Um, so we went again to a Michelin star place. My, my buddy's really on a, uh, his goal in life is to eat at every Michelin starred restaurant in the world. Apparently there's actually a tour that goes to every three-star Michelin restaurant in the world for like $450,000 a person. So that's his like ultimate travel dream. So we went to this Michelin-starred sushi restaurant because Jiro, which is where we really wanted to go from Jiro Dreams of Sushi, apparently will not take reservations from Westerners, even through my hotel's concierge. And if you go there and you don't speak Japanese, they will kick you out. And Sushi Saito which is the other one that's supposed to be that amazing is now a private club. Even for the place that we went, we had to make reservations through my hotel, um, through the concierge there because we as Westerners currently in the States, because you have to make your reservation ahead of time, could not get a reservation at a place like this. So we go and it is six seats and the chef which is just the most intimate experience you can possibly have. So the chef is doing his thing and cutting up each fish and each one is done differently with different knives and different preparations and different knife strokes. I mean, I'm a, an amateur chef in my other life. And I don't think I could make a single knife cut uh, that this guy did just the way that he made them. And you're sitting there and you're two feet away and you're part of that experience. And So the meal was 20 courses. Each course maybe was a bite or a small dish, or sometimes it was a couple of different preparations. And you eat what he gives you. And he'll explain a little bit about what it is in broken English, at least what fish it is. Beyond that, in terms of the preparation, you'll find out when you eat it. And everything was perfect. I guess what really struck me is just the level of mastery of a skill and dedication to a skill in order to be able to take any fish because it's not a set menu. It's whatever they got fresh that day that looked good. And this guy has his tools and his knowledge, and he's been apprenticing for heaven only knows how many years. And he knows exactly what to do with that fish to make it perfect. And I feel like that's also something that really speaks volumes about Japanese culture. That just the dedication to a craft, to be an expert, such an expert in one very small specific area of life. Again, that's not something we see as much of in the States. And it's, it's an absolute wonder to behold. So we're sitting there yeah, there's six people total. And it, it was actually really funny. So it's the two of us at, at one end. So the Americans who don't speak a word of Japanese. At the other end was a couple who were on a date. And this girl was obviously not really familiar with sushi or a high-end restaurant. And she really wanted orange juice to go with her sushi. And they don't serve orange juice at this place. And so after explaining that to her and she says, no, I really want orange juice they actually sent somebody out to buy orange juice to bring it back. And then in between us were these two business people who had probably four carafts of sake, a piece between them, you know, by, by the time the meal was done um, who were just loving every moment that they were there and hopefully charging it to wherever they worked. And so you have these three just really interesting, diverse you know, duets of people, but all having that same amazing experience and sharing those yummy sounds and the looks, you know, as your eyes roll back in your head, where you're like, oh my God, what on earth is that? It's just really, really an amazing experience and so intimate. One of those moments that like, oh my gosh, this is Japan. This is what this is all about.
0: There's a strange duality to the Japanese culture, where in one hand they are meticulous about their process, yet they are open-minded with their ingenuity. They take the space to test and test and test again until their creativity becomes perfect. And to a Western palate that leads to endless surprises.
3: I mean, so I think that there's also, just when it comes to the food and the culture, when you eat in the United States, you eat in Western Europe, things are made for that Western European, American, whatever palate. And in Japan, it's completely different. And so when it comes to, I think there's a, just a willingness to try things. There's a willingness to do something and see if it may or may not work. We, we went to this little, it, we, it was called like an Italian fusion place that was right near our hotel one night because we were exhausted after getting back from a day trip. We just didn't want to walk too far for dinner. And I had spaghetti. With a soy cream sauce, uni, and salmon roe. That should not have worked. There is no possible rhyme or reason for that to taste good. I thought, hey, why not? The picture looked good, and I like uni, and I hadn't had any yet. And so I figured, what's the worst thing that could happen? But it worked. And that willingness to take spaghetti with a soy cream sauce and to do it and to do it well and not to do it as a gimmick but to actually take pride in doing spaghetti with a soy cream sauce i think that is also representative of japanese culture it's that ultimate pride in workmanship it's the reason that japanese knives are so expensive but so magical. There's that willingness to do something new, but then to do it so well, to do it with perfect technique, and to make it work. And I, again, that was just one of those, to me, quintessential Tokyo experiences. This is the ultimate place of modernity meets you, know, the, the traditional. And to be able to see that in the food as well, using traditional ingredients, traditional techniques, but then taking them and meshing them with random things to show what a cosmopolitan city this is, that's cool. So that's what I mean when I say that you can go to Tokyo and you can have this amazing culinary experience and it doesn't have to, you know, be the end of your finances. It can be. And for people who love that, there's so much there for you. But also, if you only want to spend $11 on a bowl of soup, you're going to get the best bowl of soup that you've ever had. Because in a culture that seems to value food this much, places don't stay open if they're not great. I think it's like Uh, I tell people that the Mexican food in LA and in San Diego, these are two places I've lived, are both fantastic. Because people are so discerning when it comes to that, that a place that makes lousy tacos isn't going to stay in business. And Tokyo seemed like that with everything.
0: I loved how Jonathan's expectations completely turned him inside out and helped him re-examine his relationship with the culture. And expectations can be a surprising ingredient to food. That is something that true eaters like Daryl and Mindy have learned through their travels. Daryl and Mindy were brought together by their love of bagels. Or really, they weeded each other out based on where they thought the best bagels were in Manhattan. And on Instagram, they have the dream job. They're the writers for their food and travel blog, Two Food Trippers, and have traveled the world guided by their newest cravings through the finest restaurants and secret holes in the wall. But just because they experience establishments with more Michelin stars than movie stars in them, that doesn't mean that it always results in life-changing meals.
4: Yeah, I mean, we've had disappointing meals.
0: Yeah. Well, we're not
5: like obsessed with eating at Michelin star restaurants, but when we do, we expect them to be really good because they're usually kind of expensive.
4: And we ate at
5: one in
4: when well, I was in Galway. In Galway, yeah, it was very. And bad. we were so disappointed. But also, I mean, I would almost say like we we had even gone to French Laundry if, uh, about four or five years ago. That was about yeah about four Longer. years ago. Yeah, we yeah. That, and I, I mean, and while as I said, it was really good. But when you're spending that kind of money, you really would expect to be blown away. And I know. It, so the thing is, I think what people don't understand about restaurants is they go through phases where there are different people in the operation. You don't really know like what, what you're going to get in a, at a given time.
0: But they are true eaters because they know in order to enjoy the best food, they have to go through the worst of it as well. From the bitter meals to the sour stomachs.
4: What was what were some of the worst food
0: places you got? Well, let's see. We've traveled a lot of places. And one of a lot of
5: the places, we eat a lot of street food and questionably clean food at times. But I think one of the sickest I've gotten was in Sweden, which is one of the cleanest countries we've ever visited. But I think I got it. We, we were at a lunch in a castle. And I think that's where I got it. I think that's where it started. Which really just shows you... All it takes is one person to not wash their hands.
4: One germ. That's all it takes. One germ.
5: Yeah, I got bad food poisoning years ago in San Diego. Uh Uh, We went to, what's a neighborhood that has the...
4: It was like Old Town. Old Town, town
5: where they have a lot of Mexican restaurants. Uh I ordered a burrito with shrimp. That was a mistake. Uh, I had Montezuma's Revenge in San Diego. But,
4: you know, as far as it goes, I think a lot of people would say, oh, be careful with the street food, be careful with the street food. But like, you don't know, like, I mean, I've worked with kitchens, I've done lots of different stuff like that. You, I mean, people, if they knew what happened in restaurants, even in the United States, they'd be a little bit scared. I think that people tend to think just because it's street food doesn't make it safe. I think, and you'd be surprised, some of the cleanest stands you'd see, they could be washing the vegetables under like really dirty water. They could be doing lots of different stuff that you have no idea. So... I, I think if you're traveling to a place like Southeast Asia, you have to give yourself time sometimes to acclimate to just the different conditions. It really helps. I think that's the hardest part about travel if, in, if you're traveling short-term is you don't have a lot of time for your stomach to get used to the, the given pathogens in a, in a country.
0: But they have learned that good food can be enjoyed from every level, from high tops in midtown Manhattan to plastic chairs on the streets of Thailand.
5: Well, when we started, when we were thinking about starting to travel full-time, the one thing that Daryl really, really wanted to do was go to a certain restaurant in France. We had seen this movie at the Philadelphia Film Festival a couple years before, and it was called Entre les Bras, or Step Up to the Plate, not the best name in English.
4: For a French film. For
5: a French so film. So they don't play baseball. Yeah. But um, it, it's about this, uh, th- at the time, three-star Michelin restaurant in the French countryside and the transition from the father to the son in this restaurant that's been very pivotal pivotal with um, nouvelle yeah. cuisine and all types of gastronomy. So that was the one and only thing that Daryl really, really wanted to do. And we got there and it was a splurge and it exceeded every expectation it was the food was just as good as we expected it was fantastic
4: well there there's a very famous dish that they make there called a uh, garguiou um, it's basically what they do is they it, this restaurant that we went to um, Maison brass is like the um, the chef Michel brass was the very First person to do foraging. I know a lot of people talk about Noma when it comes to foraging, but down here, I think I think Michel Bras was doing it way before Noma. And they go out to the valley and they pick different flowers and all these different ingredients that are within, like, say, forty like kilometers of the restaurant. And each individual uh, element is cooked to a certain precise doneness. And it's all put on a plate. It's, it's like a really crazy dish where you just see like a million different elements at once it's at pretty. one time. But it's really pretty. It's really something to see. Um, also, you know, there was um, – the one thing is if you ever go out to a, um, a three-star Michelin restaurant in France, and what makes the, the experience different there is they have the most extraordinary cheese cart that comes – If you've eaten all this food, you get this cart that comes out and has all like the best French cheeses you've ever tasted. <laughs>
5: And you can have as much as you want.
4: That's true.
5: <laughs> How about the O'Brock steak steak? Um, oh, right.
4: Exactly. Um, there, there was um. They've there, there's a really it's a big dairy and and cattle area. They have the best cows in France. What? The potato. You? Oh, 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 right, right, right. Uh, Alligots. Alligots. Yeah. Um, there's a stretchy um, potato. If, if I'm pronouncing all my T's, everyone, this the way they pronounce those things. <laughs> in that region of France. So it's it's not It's not Bras. It's not Alligot. It's aligot. And they actually take these potatoes and mix them with this special cheese, um, uh, tom, tom de la and they they mix it and it stretches and it's it's a really special experience. In fact, the next day we went to a cheese um, factory and we were able to buy this um, potato cheese stuff, and we we took it back to our apartment in Lyon and cooked it like the next night. It was really cool.
5: But the whole experience in this uh, restaurant overlooking. The, the
4: valley it was like the highest point probably over this um valley uh, 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 this uh, yeah, this whole area called aubrach it's right near not far away from the, where they make uh roquefort cheese but like it's also just this huge like french countryside valley and we had the most amazing sunset that night and and i think one of the most incredible parts of the meal is they sit you down at a table and you're literally like looking at the valley. is almost like it's like a theater and you sit down and you see the sunset as you're eating it was it was really really a special experience i don't think we would ever really forget yeah when you spend that kind of money Mm -hmm. you have to feel like you have to feel like a different person when you walked out from when you walked in if you don't feel that way then i think that that kind of dining experience has not really succeeded. I think if you feel like I walked in and said, Oh, well, you know, it was a really great meal and now I'm done. But no, like if you walk in and you just have this incredible, like start to finish, that's like four or five hours. I know a lot of people go crazy about that, but like where it really feels like every sense is being blown away for a long period of time. And I, I think that's what, what great, like, world class audience all about.
5: But then again yesterday we had an amazing experience here in Vietnam. We took a car and then walked several blocks down some winding alleys to we weren't even sure exactly where we were going. But when we got there it was this seafood or as they call it here in Vietnam, Hai San Restaurant. We we were probably the only ones there who spoke English. And for less than twelve dollars for the two of us we had a huge feast of crabs and what else yeah. And, to, and cuttlefish think, and, and, I, and I,
4: yeah, cuttlefish and, and um what the oysters oysters and uh, and shrimp. Yeah. And, oh shrimp. yeah, the yeah. Yeah. shrimp. I mean like that's we're, like, we're living next in Denang. That's another thing we didn't mention, is that like we're in this seafood mecca here, among them, right at the edge of the Vietnam Sea, it's it's really unbelievable. If you look every day, there's like probably a thousand different fishing trawlers heading out to the sea right near our house.
5: But it was opposite of fancy. We're sitting in teeny tiny plastic chairs, eating with chopsticks and forks, and, and our fingers drinking, getting
4: really dirty. Yeah, and
5: drinking beer, and it was awesome. It really was.
0: But no matter where they are. They have found the basic ingredients to human connection
5: We're food and travel, travel and food. they go together so well and it's just really interesting to us like as we've been traveling, I think we've been to like twenty twenty five countries in the past two and a half years, and we don't usually speak the language, but we always can communicate through food um, through learning the food names, just just sharing smiles and and good times as we've eaten food that people have prepared for us. It's been a common bond and a way to connect with people.
0: If food is a language, then drinking is slang. Most cultures around the world unwind by cracking open a cold one or popping open a cork. We've been drinking beer longer than we've been writing. The oldest record of beer drinking dates back to 7,000 years ago in modern Iran. We have been drunk throughout most of history. And Chris Luce, from Podcast Worldwide, has dedicated an entire show to capture the friendship that begins to germinate over a fresh pint. He sits down with interesting locals at their favorite watering hole and enjoy a local brew together. He tells us of a time how beer was a way he was able to spontaneously connect with locals without emailing them ahead of time
6: in london i was you know cruising around the bermondsey beer mile which is an area i think on the southeast side of london um and it was a sunday and i just happened to bump into like i hadn't been able to find a podcast guest and i happened to bump into a brewery that was closed but they were they were building a keg raft that day a raft made out of kegs for a regatta that they were going to compete in and and a regatta what's a regatta yeah So, uh, And and a regatta is like, as as far as I know, it's like a competition. I think it's specific to sailing or like some nautical vessel. I'm doing air quotes because, let's be honest, a bunch of floating kegs tied together is not, I guess, necessarily a, a proper nautical vessel. But anyway, they were building a keg out of rafts, and I walk up, and I'm like... Hey guys, and they're like, "Hey, we're closed. They can't come in." I'm like, "Well, actually, I'm a I'm a beer podcaster. Like, I'm I'm really interested in showcasing some of the London beer scene. Would you guys be be interested in having a conversation?" They're like, "Well, yeah." And they just started whipping beers out of the fridge and whatnot. And we got set up in the back of the brewery and uh, had a great conversation around what you know how the London craft beer culture had evolved in really a short period of time, about five years. And one of my favorite parts of that story is I had brought beer with me from America to share. I think that's one of the most important elements about beer. It's not meant to be something you sniffed and have on your own. It's something you, you share to bring friends, family, or complete strangers together. And in that case, I pulled out a very rare bottle of beer from... I shouldn't say rare, but a pretty, pretty rare bottle of beer from Northern California, uh, Pliny the Elder. For any beer fans that are listening, and I showed that to them. I'm like, I want you guys to have this, and, I'm, and they're like, Well, we want you to have like this, enti- in what felt like an entire fridge of of their beer. And I'm like, Well, I guess I'm gonna have to check a bag to Croatia now. So that was a fun one, just in terms of how that started from. Nothing like literally nothing scheduled, just trying to find someone to have that conversation with for the podcast to building connections with this group of people and ultimately sharing some beers from our respective part of the world with one another
0: okay. so what did they think of the American beer and what did you think of the London so, beer?
6: yeah so so it's uh, it's interesting because I think as the world in my opinion continues to get smaller um, A lot of places are keeping up with all the latest craft beer trends. Like, when I was having that conversation with the brewery in London, they were saying that, you know, hey, I know you guys in America, you're pretty far ahead, like, you're doing all these new things. And I was drinking their, like, farmhouse beers and their hazy IPAs. I'm like, you guys are, like, right, right with us. Like, I'm not seeing, like, a re like I don't see anything that's a noticeable, like— difference in quality. So what I think was most interesting was we had an appreciation for the creativity that both of our respective cultures or parts of the world were putting into our beer.
0: Chris has taped tons of episodes, and it made me wonder what he's imbibed around universal human interactions. And with all that drinking, thank God he records it.
6: One thing that I've seen... Oh, so, so the biggest thing I observe when it comes to drinking across cultures is that I see more of the similarities than I see the differences. So, I mean, sure, there's a, difference, a different way to say cheers, depending on what language you're in, whether that's salud or prost. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, drinking in... I shouldn't say all, but most cultures, is that social activity that's meant to connect you regardless of what walk of life you're from. And to a big extent, that's why I wanted to start a pub cast, Pubcast Worldwide two years ago because I was excited to see how that medium of conversation would translate into, you know, a show that could be shared with others and allow people to jump into that experience even if they weren't at the table drinking with us. It could be like they were at the table drinking along with us.
0: So what are the similarities?
6: The similarities that I've seen, one, Most people, really, I shouldn't even say most people, all people are looking for a way to connect whether whether that's with someone that's different or whether that's with someone that's very similar to them. You know, I think one one episode that's sticking out in my mind right now is when I was in Northern Ireland and talking to a history teacher turned tour guide about the Troubles, which were one of the largest national nationalist conflicts of the 20th century that went on for, I mean, I, I might be getting my dates wrong, but ultimately almost half a century and, he, and and the individual that I was speaking with, his name's Donzo he would actually facilitate conversations and dialogue between ex-prisoners that at one time were trying to kill one another and during those conversations the way he put it was the individuals on both sides the nationalists and the loyalists or I hope I'm getting that right, nationalists, unionists I, I always get them um, they're, they're a handful of terms but what he was saying is at the end of the conversation, they didn't dilute their own politics. They still had their own beliefs around, you know, a united Ireland or sticking with sticking with the United Kingdom. But he said they could see things from a different perspective at that point. They had a, an appreciation for, you know, what someone that, at a time, they felt were so different from them that they were trying to kill one another, and that brought them together.
0: Were they drinking?
6: They were not drinking in that scenario, but the reason I bring that up is my conversation with Donzo was over a couple pints of Guinness at a pub in the center of Belfast, having that conversation and just, you know, being able to be open and sincere and using that as a medium to really gain a better understanding of, let's be honest, someone from America that I had never been able to have that conversation before. I'd only learned it in books, so... While that goes beyond just having a conversation over beverages, I think it does bring up kind of a broader topic of the power of dialogue, particularly um, when it comes to a contentious topic.
0: You could give the U.N. leaders a few rounds of beer, and they would solve global issues faster than the two-day World Peace Summit, as long as they remember to what they agreed to. Do you have any hacking tips? For packing beverages and bringing them
6: back home. Oh, I do. This is where I think I can really provide some value because as someone and this that has, has been, been
0: completely waste of everyone's time.
6: <laughs> <until now. laughs> Thank you, Adrian. Yes, but no. So, so, so one thing I do is when I'm flying domestically, because there's a lot of good beer in different regions of the United States you can't get elsewhere. I fly Southwest first of all, because I can check two free bags, which ultimately I can fit pretty much a full case of beer between those two bags. While protecting it, the biggest thing I think that has happened for craft beer that is an advantage for traveling and packing is that we're seeing a big shift to cans. Like, you don't really have to worry about a can breaking the same way as you do a bottle. So, if I were packing a bottle, I'd wrap it in an individual t shirt and put it in a plastic bag so that way if it were to break, you know, the t shirt would soak it up and it probably wouldn't get all over the rest of my stuff. I do the similar thing with cans, but I can put four cans into like a, you know, a plastic bag. Just pop a t-shirt in there just cuz you know, if one bursts, the t-shirt soaks up. But I don't necessarily need to protect the integrity of the can like I need to protect the integrity of the bottle. So, long story short, wrap your beverages in a t-shirt, put them in a plastic bag, and that's the best way to transport them. I have yet to have an issue with security or getting across a border, as long as it's in my checked luggage.
0: We will end with our hunt for the sweet potato men, the way our ancestors used to search for food. As Ubish and I wandered through the streets of La Roma, we would run up to innocuous taco stands with people standing around it and having their last snack of the night. A commanding cook would be frying meat on a hot griddle. His face glimmers in the bright lights of the taco stand with grease and sweat running down his face. Ubish would ask, have you seen the sweet potato man? No hello, no how are you. It's totally acceptable to just ask and then split. Two people pointed towards the same street, and the chef pointed in the opposite direction. We follow the fingers of our chewing compatriots and run off. And after 10 minutes of walking, Ubish says, We should be looking in the bike lane if he's on the move. It's wider than the streets. And then at last, we spot him. Smell,
1: smell Yeah, no, it's oh, <laughs> Wait, what is the smell? It's, it's him Oh my god He farted <laughs> Oh my god Yeah, you're right, he's in the lane
0: Yeah <laughs> That's too funny <laughs> I just, I want the I, sound I'm going to,
1: I'm going to uh, Well, yeah, let's follow him until so he, we hear the sound So let's, let's just follow him okay. And then what are were going to do? is that we are going to go, we're going to buy, and I'm going to ask him certain things like, where do you, and then you got that in your interview. Amazing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a thrill. <laughs>
0: well, because it's like, you don't, there's, there's no texting service. There's no anything yeah, no. to be That's like, it, how it, do the you find marketing. this guy? That sound is his marketing. Now we're just creeping. (laughs) We're just (laughs) following him.
1: (laughs) He's going, where would you? hide the camotes, man. Yeah.
4: Yeah.
0: How did...
1: That was a good one.
0: How did you know that he was going to do it?
1: I thought he was... Doing something. Pebbling? Yeah. Let's go. Camotes! Oh my god, this is it's a paseira. Buenas noches. ¿Tiene plátanos? Plátanos, camotes. ¿Cómo te- ¿Está, está el plátano? 30. Eh. Un platanito, porfa, con lechera. ¿Y a poco aquí se cocinan? ¿Sí? ¿No los traes ya cocidos? No. ¿Cómo ¿Cuánto se tardan en cocinarse? Dos horas ¿Dos horas? Sí. ¿Y mientras se cocinan qué haces? Nada más caminando No, y en el día los preparamos Ya ahorita es para que ah, no tengan calientes. ¿Pero aquí también los cocinas? Ajá, aquí mismo. ¿Y este cuánto tarda en calentarse? No, pero no ¿No? La, a la hora de que le eche lumbre y calientes Oye, tú estás bien chavo, ¿no? Is de tu papa, or what? la tradición vale oh, Tendrás otro tenedor, sí. ¿Cuánto te debemos? 30. I have like a little bit of change. Sí, have like a bit of change. Ah,
0: okay.
1: yeah, maybe. It's a, because I don't have change. you always por here? I have
6: 20. I have... Miércoles. Oh.
1: Miércoles, nomás Gracias. Perfecto.
0: Gracias. Perfecto. Gracias. Sí. Gracias. Hasta luego.
4: Hasta
0: luego. Oh it smells so weird. Oh my god, I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm not even hungry.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean
0: So what did he pour on top of it?
1: Um condensed Do you have water?
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's the most <master> important? <laughs>
0: scariest fucking sound dude like i used to think that it was the reaper yeah that it was some type of weird for some reason i thought it was a gas thing
1: gas gasoline
0: i don't know why i thought that it was
1: selling gasoline it just
0: sounds so Uh,
1: creepy
0: yeah creepy menacing oh sounds like a monster <laughs> it does yeah. but then when you realize it's the most innocent thing like literally the softest thing because these are being cooked in a stove and they're just like these really soft sweet
1: <laughs> it tastes better when somebody feeds you it does
0: it does taste better.
1: So it's just because I put a lot of condensed milk. Like uh, I do it like this. this.
0: Why don't oh my god. I'm not hungry. <laughs> <laughs> um do you know why this is a street food snack?
1: No. I mean it's common that plantains are a street food. Sweet potato, I think that this is the only thing that uh, that I have seen sweet potato cooked with in it. Yeah. I don't know.
0: Cause I don't see sweet potatoes on
1: anything like, anything else. No. No, no idea. That's
0: so interesting. Why
1: do they put sweet and condensed milk over? I mean, you actually, you have options. You have you can put condensed milk or just cream and uh, powdered sugar. Mm. I like better with condensed milk. Yeah. I mean, but powdered sugar, it feels good, the crunchiness of the powdered sugar.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think it just depends. Do they
0: put that on the sweet potatoes? Yeah. They put powdered sugar in the sweet potatoes?
1: Uh-huh. You can choose or condensed milk or powdered sugar.
0: I guess that's kind of... So one of our Thanksgiving foods is... It's mashed sweet potatoes and then we put marshmallows on top and we bake the marshmallows. So it's a hard, it's like nice crunchy marshmallow topping like a little golden all melted on top of sweet potatoes.
1: That sounds pretty bad.
0: <laughs> Why does it sound bad? Uh, bad in what way?
1: <laughs> sounds like you make it up like right now. It doesn't sound like traditional.
0: I will send you, I will send you like 40,000 different (laughs) recipes. You
1: know how it sounds like? Have you seen the BuzzFeed recipes that they make recipes of M&Ms with uh, chocolate chips? And It sounds like that. Like, oh, sweet potato and, yeah, marshmallows. I have some marshmallows.
0: I don't know where it's from. Americans do really weird things with marshmallows. Yeah. That is a scary noise. That is a noise that you hear in a nightmare.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. How far is he right now? That's
0: what I'm saying. How far away is he?
1: Three blocks? Two blocks? Three blocks, I think.
0: Three blocks, at least? I mean, we heard him... When did we hear him from when did we find him? Do you know... Like, we walked... Oh, yeah. What would be, like, a full avenue? Yeah. So... How? Like you can hear him from so far away.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, not. if you're really craving for one, you just have to wait until, because he usually doesn't go at the same time. What do you mean? I mean, they say that they they will say, "Oh yeah, I'm here at <laughs> eight, always here right. in this street." Right. But no, they are not. Right. No. <laughs> do so, you?
0: What are you gonna
1: say? So, if you're really craving for it. You're waiting, oh, it's already 8, and where is he? You no, know? And you might don't get it that night.
0: Because I feel like other, other vendors might be closed at times, that you're like, oh man,
2: I really That's wanted it.
0: this. But you know that they're always physically there. Yeah. Whereas this guy wanders. It's all... It's almost like... I guess it's the same thing with the peanut guys and the mango men like they're always wandering as well but they do seem to stick to just smaller I don't know but also you can get peanuts and mangoes at markets you yeah. can't really get these no
1: that is just in the street
0: such a scarcity I love it <laughs> I love it I think it's so fascinating
1: I think that I love it that you love it <laughs>
0: but I think it's I think I get excited about it because we live in like how far away is it
1: I don't know yeah I don't know
0: like far at least at least five blocks away
1: yeah
0: I think it's because in the age of knowing everything in the age of being like okay my (laughs) Uber is four minutes away yeah I'm able to have some mystery. Yeah. (laughs) It's romantic. It is romantic. And I don't think that... I kind of think that millennials are a little starved for mystery. Because we can just Wikipedia everything. Yeah. But we can't Google Maps. Where's the sweet potato seller? Yeah. (laughs) So I think that that... It adds to it.
1: Yeah. I like a lot how you analyze it. (laughs)
0: way deeper than necessary (laughs) (laughs) we moved because of food if you follow our migration patterns our wars and revolutions they are all based around a new edible discovery The European explorers found great wealth in the Americas, with cocoa, potatoes, peppers, tomatoes, and more. The French Revolution started over bread, and the island of Manhattan was traded for nutmeg. We moved, we danced, we celebrated, and fought over food. It's been an instrument to conducting human relations, a negotiation tool, a way to bond and unite groups. We're more understanding when we have bellies filled with rice than on an empty stomach. You have to listen to the other person when you're eating. The moments of chewing while someone else is explaining their perspective will give you pause. But food is more than substance, it's also an identifier. What we eat indicates who we are and where we come from. It tethers us to where we're born and drives us to keep exploring. So, who's hungry? our bellies are full. We have the energy and liquid courage to find some romance. Our next episode will be all about amour. The loves and losses, coup de foudre, hookups and breakups. We will talk to travelers who have had their romantic experiences flipped upside down because they traveled to another hemisphere. Put on your rose-colored glasses because we're about to fall in love. Next time on Strangers Abroad.